This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Steven Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. What does it take to go find deals direct to seller for commercial multifamily? So many people believe it's not possible to do, but today's guest, Tim Bratz, is an absolute expert at this, has bought hundreds and now thousands of units directly from sellers across the Southeast. We get into how he goes about doing it, and most importantly, the mindset that it takes to succeed at going down this path. You're not gonna wanna miss even a moment of this episode. Let's get to it. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm excited today. I've got Tim Bratz in the studio. How are you doing today, Tim? Awesome, man. Steven, excited to be here, buddy. I am excited to have you. And you guys know Tim is the CEO and founder of Legacy Wealth Holdings, a real estate investment company that acquires and transforms distressed apartment buildings into high yield assets for their own portfolio. And working in real estate, Tim has built a passive business and created a residual income that allows him to live the lifestyle that he chooses. And he's here to educate and empower others to do exactly the same thing. He's doing some amazing things on going direct to seller, acquiring properties uh, in a way that's fairly unique, I would say, within the commercial real estate space. So I'm excited to dive into that. Are you ready to get into things, Tim? Let's rock and roll, buddy. All right. So why don't we start out by taking a look back at earlier in your life? What events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today? Listen, man, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. My dad was a cop. My mom was in the education industry. And so I'm as blue collar as they come. I'm from the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, yeah, man, just uh, going through school, you know, I always wanted to like be a doctor, be whatever that, that looked like. And then I realized how long you had to go to school for. And although I was a good student, I just didn't want to go to school that long. And so, well, my parents are always like, you can do whatever you want to do. And my dad, although he was a cop, he had a side business and his side business was like personnel security for different apartment buildings and factories and foundries and, and stuff in the Cleveland area. And he made a couple times more in his part-time business than he did in his full-time job. And he always told me, go to school, get good grades, get a good job. And I was like, it's counterintuitive to what I'm seeing though, dad, You're making more money in your part-time business. I need to be an entrepreneur. And I was always very entrepreneurial. I was like, you know, making, burning CDs and selling to my friends or cutting people's hair or whatever in, in high school and, and college. And, um, and so when, uh, when I, when I went through college, I, I started a painting company and then I worked for a big home builder as an intern and just realized there was a lot of money in real estate. Everybody's like, you want to make money, get involved in real estate. And that's what motivated me. So I moved out to New York City. I graduated from college in 2007 and I thought you got involved in real estate by becoming a real estate agent. And so I got my real estate license and started, but I, but I fell into like a, a commercial brokerage. So I did retail leasing and, um, so when you were a kid, though, specifically, it sounds like you had grown up in this blue collar family where, you know, your dad was a cop and, you know, money wasn't just flowing out of every single direction. You know, at what point when you were, did you realize that like entrepreneurship was the path that you need to take? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, we didn't, we weren't rich, but we, uh, I never knew need, right? Like there was always food on the table. We always had a warm home. Yeah. 
I was at clothes on my back, that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I, I just, again, I guess it was just watching my dad and seeing him again, making more money on a part-time business in the cracks of his schedule than he was in his full-time job. And, uh, he was always burning the, you know, like an insane work ethic, like always working. I remember some, some Christmases he had to like go out and somebody didn't show up and he had to go and fill in or whatever that looked like. And so I didn't like that aspect of it, but I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I didn't like working for other people. I had some jobs and stuff through, through high school and it just, uh, and through college and it just didn't resonate with me. Somebody else barking at me, telling me what to do. I'm going to, I'm an adult. You're going to tell me when I can go to the bathroom. You can tell me when I can eat lunch. You're going to tell like, get the hell out of here. Like, uh, what, what kind of, what kind of, I'm not a sheep. I'm not going to go and, and, and do that. So, you know, for me early on, I just, it just never resonated for me to go and work for somebody else. So I always wanted to do my own thing. I just didn't know what the, what the vehicle I guess would be. And, um, again, when I was going through college, it was 03 to 07. So everybody's making money in real estate during that time frame, mm-hmm. And that's what motivated a 20 year old kid. So I'm like, dude, I want to go and do real estate. And I got involved, like I said, in the construction side and then an intern. And then when I was 21, moved out to New York city and got my real estate license. And so that's really what, what resonated with me. And, and I remember, you know, like you go around and you're in, I was in Manhattan and I would go and just kind of canvas neighborhoods and try to find vacant retail space or try to talk to business owners that wanted to set up a second location. And I remember like walking down the street, going past one of the parks. It wasn't one of the main parks. It was like one of the kind of off the beaten track kind of parks. And they were like, so many people there in the middle of the day on a Tuesday. I'm like, how the hell is it possible that this many people are not at work right now? And I was like, they can't all be in like food and bed, like working in the evenings or something or having like, I was like, there's something that somebody knows that I don't know. And that's when I read um, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I started getting in like these other books that talked about residual income and, and passive income and doing something once and getting paid on it over and over again. And, and then I brokered the first lease in Manhattan and it was a 400 square foot retail space and we signed a 12 year lease uh, with 4% annual increases starting at $10,000 a month. And you do the math on that, man. You're like, dude, this landlord off of 400 square feet is going to make almost 2 million bucks over the next 12 years for doing something one time. And I was like, dude, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate, not, not brokering it. And so I got bit by that residual bug and I was like, I need to go own real estate. But then I think I fell into the trap that a lot of real estate investors do. I'm thinking I got to go stockpile my own cash, mm-hmm. right? I got to go and do transactional stuff to make enough money to then roll it into these passive income producing assets. And um, I thought that for sure. It is not true, Right. And so you don't have to do that, but I, that's, that's how, where I was. So yeah, I mean, you did it. I did it. And I'm not saying that it's, it's like the wrong path. I'm just saying you don't have to do that. It's a self-limiting belief. There's a lot of private money out there and people that'll invest in your projects right out of the gate. So, you know, I got in the residential, started flipping houses. It's 2008 now. So for 2008, I started educating myself on it. In 2009, I bought my first investment property. And so flipped that, made a few bucks, got into wholesaling, made some money there. But more importantly, I met people who saw that I knew how to find a good deal and saw my work ethic. And they're like, listen, kid, I might not have the time. I don't have the bandwidth to take on more projects. I don't have the knowledge or the expertise that you have, but I got some money. And so I, I started raising my, pro- like I, I got my first private money lenders at 23, 24 years old. They started putting up the money. I did all the work and then we ended up splitting it or I'd pay them a fixed return or whatever the, the deal ended up being depending on the project. And so that's, that's really what kind of got me into buying and holding 
small residential single family portfolios. And then um, in 2012, I ended up moving back to Cleveland, Ohio. I was I moved out of Charleston, South Carolina for about five years. 2012, moved back up back up to Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, got my first apartment building. That's like you know that was at the base at the at the bottom of the trough of what everything was. And and you know I bought an eight unit apartment building for thirty thousand dollars in a C class area. I'm like how do you not? I was wow. like I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can't lose on this thing. I know I can at least sell it for what I'm into it for. I do. I got it all renovated, fixed up, and I was all in for 80 grand, $10,000 a unit, and it rented for the net income on it was $27,000 per year. And so my cap rate was 33%. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Just do it again, do it again. I just, and and it resonated with me. I liked apartments because it just, it met my level of ambition. It met, like it, it, it made sense because of the scale and it made sense because of the efficiencies of going and collecting rent from one location instead of eight locations. I like the idea of mm-hmm. looking at one roof instead of eight roofs and going and, and looking at one foundation instead of eight, meeting my contract at one location instead of eight, right? And so I really like that aspect of it. And I just thought it was, it, it resonated more with what my goals, what my ambitions were and uh, what I wanted to accomplish in real estate. So that's what I ended up focusing on. And so tell us, what's your primary focus now from the investment front? Just apartment. Well, I would say 90%, 95% is apartments. I do a little bit of dabbling into, not dabbling, but investing in awesome operators on the um, self-storage facility side of things. So I got uh, two facilities right now. We're investing in another one, closing another one next month. And uh, that's a big one. And we have another three or four of them in the pipeline. So I just invest in those because I don't really know and understand the operations well. So I find mm-hmm. phenomenal operators and then I bring money to the cap, to the, to the deal. Uh, sometimes I'll sponsor the loan. And otherwise, you know, that's about my, my extent of being involved in that. But we're learning a lot more every single deal that we do. So I think pretty soon we will be able to operate in, in some of those things on our own. We had some great management companies and, and kind of hand some things off to them too. But the multifamily side, that's what I grew up in. And that's what I know inside and out. I know A to Z, dude, I was doing everything from finding deals, off-market deals, negotiating them, closing on them, renovating them, overseeing contractors, sometimes swinging the hammer myself, collecting rent myself, handling maintenance calls myself, like picking up space heaters in the middle of the night in the wintertime because all the pipes froze and taking them out to the properties myself, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I've done everything, including the exit side of things, and selling them and refinancing them and 1031 exchanges and all that stuff. And I've done all of it in the multifamily side. So it's very hard to have the wool pulled over my eyes in any multifamily deal. So we own and operate and manage all those ourselves. And so, you know, my portfolio is a little over $330 million. And I would say 90, I'd say every bit of 90% of that is multifamily, maybe 95% mm-hmm. of it. Well, those are all pretty large multifamily. Now you're focused strictly on commercial buildings, like hundred plus units or kind of what's the, what's the smallest type of unit that you'd be interested in purchasing kind of today, just to put it in perspective for listeners before we dive deep into how you're going about finding these deals. Yeah. I mean, I still have buildings in my portfolio that are 10, 15, or I have a, this one, I'm, my office building right now is a nine unit. And so I own it. I rent out. I have, I have what, two of the spaces for myself and then uh, rent out the other seven to other tenants, entrepreneurs and stuff. 
that's my smallest building. I have other buildings that are in the, in the 14, 24, 30 unit range as well, but we're actually trying to sell a lot of those. Right now, the only things that we look at are 100 units and bigger. And the reason because it, it, for that is because we can have on-site management, on-site leasing, on-site maintenance, and all that stuff is there's, a lot, there's layers of efficiencies that come with getting bigger property. Ideally, I'd like to be 200 units, 300 units or bigger uh, on a per location basis. Those are just harder to find. Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge difference when you're starting to look at bigger units. And so I'm really curious, right? I've been in the single family game, you know, for three years, you know, flipped or wholesale over 200 properties. So I've been super focused on going direct to seller. And now I've made this transition into, you know, working with experienced operators and bringing a lot of value to their world. But, you know, what I hear so often in multifamily is that there's only one way to find a deal and that's through a broker. And I believe that you're finding it in a lot of different ways. And so I had really love to dive into, you know, what is your process for going out and finding great multifamily deals? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. It's a question I get um, a lot of times is how are you finding deals, right? And everybody thinks, here's the thing, commercial real estate is a very old school mentality. It's a lot of older generation. It's people who've been doing it the exact same way for the past 50 years. And that's go through a broker. The broker brings you a deal. You close on through the broker. You list it through the broker, right? And that's, that's standard operating procedure. What you need to understand is there's not as much red tape and regulation in commercial real estate as there was in residential, right? In residential, if you're a real estate agent, you get a listing, you have to put that on the MLS within 72 hours, right? That's to protect the little old lady who inherited a property and so some big bag realtor or investor can't take advantage of her. In commercial real estate, you're buying and owning property because you're doing it for investment purposes. So you're assumed to be more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And so there's not as many like uh, safeguards in place for, for owners and investors. So when you give a listing to an agent, they don't go and put it on the MLS or LoopNet or CoStar or whatever. What they end up doing is they shop it around to the top buyers in town so that way they can earn both sides of the commission. So it doesn't mm -hmm. get the most exposure and, and you're not going to get the top price point because it's only getting shopped around to a couple people. And if you're not one of those top 10 buyers in town, you're not going to see it. So that's when you get the scraps of all the garbage that's listed on, on LoopNet. And so what you need to understand is like, dude, I didn't come from a big commercial real estate family. I didn't go to Wharton school of finance and, and real estate. I didn't, uh, you know, I'm not a real estate agent. So I'm not in that, in that network, that, that commercial real estate network. So dude, I just came, I'm, I'm a guy from the residential realm, man. I was flipping houses. I was wholesaling houses. And I thought if this is how I'm finding deals by doing all these off market, direct to seller marketing strategies, and it works in a residential, why wouldn't it work in multifamily or in commercial? And that's what I ended up doing, man. I just, it's a breath of fresh air for sellers because they're talking to the actual buyer, not some broker. And at the same time, I'm not getting into bidding wars with all these different uh, other buyers. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, what are the ways that you find deals on the single family side? Probably direct mail, right? Direct mail, just like residential homeowners have a mailbox. So do commercial real estate owners, right? So you can send direct mail. You can drive for dollars, just like there's uh, houses with tall grass and boarded up windows. There's apartment buildings with tall grass and boarded up windows. You can dial for dollars and make phone calls. Instead of calling for sale by owners, uh, we call for rent by owners and say, hey, I'm not interested in renting your apartment. We're interested in buying the whole place. Do you have any interest in selling? We've got deals that way. There's a good one. Google reviews, right? So just jump on Google and uh, you're in California, right? 
I live in Denver, Colorado. Oh, Colorado. That's right. You just Google search Denver, Colorado apartment buildings or whatever network, like city, you know, municipality, wherever you want to buy. And just Google search apartment buildings and look for the worst Google reviews. That means the tenants are angry because the landlord's probably not taking care of the property. So it's probably signs of distressed management financial distress, physical distress, whatever that ends up being. And you can reach out to the owner, reach out to the manager and typically find some decent deals. The other way that I get a lot of deals and we're friends on Facebook is you see me posting about buying apartment buildings all the time. It's not a secret that Tim Bratz buys apartment buildings. And it, and I, it was not a secret when I left, when I, when I scaled from residential into only apartment buildings, I told everybody, I'm looking to buy apartments. I'm looking to buy apartments. I'm looking to buy apartments. Send me your apartment buildings. And what ended up happening was I became was like I became known as like the apartment buyer. I'm not the biggest buyer in Cleveland, Ohio, but I'm probably one of the best known because I'm telling people every single week on social media and I'm telling all the residential investors, wholesalers, flippers, brokers that I'm buying apartment buildings. And what I found is that they come across apartment buildings, but they don't know what to do with those leads. So they just throw them away. They just discard them. And me staying top of mind, now they have some sort of way to monetize that lead. They can send it over to Tim's team. And if Tim buys it, he'll either pay them a fee, a commission, or give them some equity even in the deal. And so I have like this army of people out there looking for deals. And when they come across a deal that they can't take down themselves, or you know they can't broker it because they don't know what to do with it or whatever, they send it to me. We, we buy it and we, uh, we kick them a fee or kick them some equity in the project. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, the fact that you're going out there letting everybody know this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm looking for. If you find anything like that, I can add value to your world. You can add value to mine. It can be, you know, really a, a great connection between each other. So if we look specifically at, you know, some of the key things you said there, direct mail, dialing for dollars, what are the differences in the conversations or the types of letters or communication that you're giving to a apartment owner versus a single family. And I think this is a really big thing because I imagine a lot of it's similar, but there's probably a couple things that you do differently when you're speaking to somebody that's a little bit more sophisticated. Well, I mean, the, what you need to understand is it's not an emotional conversation, right? And, and somebody who inherited the property, grew up in that property and you know, their, their wife just went into the nursing home and they can't handle the property. They need to go in the nursing home. That's an emotional situation, right? Somebody who inherited the property or their parents passed away and they grew up in that house. That's an emotional situation or they're selling their, their home because they're being foreclosed on. That's extremely emotional, right? In commercial real estate, it's dollars and cents. You don't have to deal with all the emotions. So it's straight, let's get to the facts. Now there's definitely some Hey, I'm in this distress situation. I have cancer or I got divorced. I got to liquidate my assets. And, and so there's a little bit of that, but a lot of it is just dollars and cents. A lot of it's like, Hey, listen, here's where the economy is. Here's where properties are trading. Here's what your occupancy is. Let's be realistic. And here's the value of the property's worth. And for me to come in and buy it, I'll, I'll take it off your hands. I buy a lot of properties from one of two categories of people. One is mom and pop owned it forever never reinvested any of the money back in, just sucked all the cash flow out of it. And you do that for 20, 30 years, dude, eventually the property falls apart. And so they back themselves into a corner where they're not financeable. They're, you know, and they, they're, they're not collecting any money. Tenants are upset. The city's upset and they got to sell it. 
and they got to sell it at a deep discount. They understand that and they just walk away from it, you know, for pennies on the dollar. So that's number one. Number two is smart entrepreneurs. I actually buy most of my properties from this category. Smart entrepreneurs making millions of dollars in their traditional business that then they deploy their excess cash and, and invest it into apartment buildings, but they're not educated. They don't have a joint venture partner who is educated. They just, they, they don't know how to interview management companies. And they just go and throw money at something and they think it's going to run itself because everybody thinks real estate's a passive income uh, investment or a residual. Residual and passive are two very different things, right? Like residual is doing something once and getting paid on it over and over and over again, but you still have to maintain it right? You still have to have maintenance. You still have to have leasing. You still have to have operations like this. It residual. Yeah. There's money that comes in every month, but it's not passive. Passive is I lend somebody money and they pay, they pay me every single month, right? It's very different. So a lot of people think they can just go and buy apartments and it, and it runs itself. It's not the case. So these entrepreneurs deploy money into apartments they don't have all those, they're not educated. They don't have a joint venture partner. They don't have uh, somebody who's local that, that um, can act as boots on the ground. They, ha- they haven't interviewed a management company. The management company ends up robbing them or whatever. And they end up losing a whole bunch of money in the property, taking their eye off the ball in their primary business and trying to keep this thing afloat. And what ends up happening, dude, is, is that they need to let something go before everything collapses. They end up letting the real estate go, going back to their primary business, and they just mm-hmm. sell it. For, for a fraction of the price because they just got to get rid of it. Otherwise their whole, their whole world collapses. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge distinction there. Just understanding that these are smart entrepreneurs that they're just not able to focus all the effort and energy here because they're not an expert in real estate. And so you can treat them like that, that, you know, Hey, these are people that know what's going on in the world, but they just didn't run this business so well. Imagine if you or I wanted to go and open up a restaurant or a bar right? Just because I drink in a bar and I eat in a restaurant doesn't mean I know anything about how to run it, right? And so I think that's a lot of the mindset of, oh, you just go and dump your money in real estate. Yeah, you do, but you need to make sure that you're partnered with somebody, make sure that somebody is paying attention to it full-time because it's a new business. You got to understand that this is a real business that needs real functioning people and processes and everything in place. And so when you're going about putting together the people to go and target, what goes into the decisions on the types of properties that you're going to target? Because from my understanding, you're buying all over the country. So, you know, obviously you can do this in a very targeted area. You can do it in a very large area. When you think about it from a larger perspective, what what are the, the key things that you're looking for? for in a property when you're thinking, hey, these people might have some kind of distress. I want to start opening up this conversation. Or is it more of like blanket marketing? I'm going to reach out to everybody who's an apartment owner above this size. Yeah, great question. The reason I buy, I think I'm in 10 states right now, is because I had a local operator that brought me a deal and they were awesome and I wanted to partner up with them and they handled the local operations of that. So that's why I invest in certain communities or certain a whole bunch of different states nationwide. If I'm not already in that marketplace, I'm not deploying any marketing into that marketplace. I like the Southeast a lot. I split my time between Cleveland, Ohio and Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, my team is headquartered in Cleveland, uh, but most of my properties are in South Carolina and Georgia. And so we do a lot of buying of not buying of traffic, but we extract landlord contact information, and we do, we do outbound, you know, reaching out to them via text messages and stuff. That's really the only paid advertising we really do right now. So we'll extract contact information from landlords in a couple communities. 
Obviously, it needs to meet our size criteria. It needs to meet our location type criteria. We might say, hey, they got to own the property for at least 10 years or longer. So that way we know there's some equity built up in it. If it's owned in a personal name instead of an LLC, that's probably, they've either owned it a very long time or they're not that sophisticated. You know, there's a lot of different categories like that that we're going to go in and reduce the list to, and then we'll reach out. We typically do either outbound calls or um, uh, uh, text messages. We get a really, really good response rate from text messages. So that's one of the things that we're, um, that we're doing on top of just, you know, I do a little bit of education and consulting type stuff where I mean, I'm really active on social media where people just know that I'm buying apartments. So if they, they come across something that's just too much for, for them to bite off on their own, then they bring it up to me. They'll, I'll join venture. I'll partner with them as long as they're competent and they know what the heck they're doing. We'll bring the money. I'll, I'll even sponsor the loan. We'll help do some of the asset management side of things too. And then they can kind of run the operations and kind of be boots on the ground partner. So that's how I've been able to build up a lot of my operation is we're really good at the administrative side, the asset management side, the fundraising side, and, and I have a big balance sheet so I can sponsor loans. So we take care of all of that stuff. And, and that's a certain type of personality, right? And then another personality is I just want to go out and, you know, knock over tables and, and, and kick tables, get contractors doing what they're supposed to be doing, make sure management's doing what they're supposed to be doing, leasing's doing what they're supposed to be doing, maintenance, all that stuff. And there's, there's it's just two, two different behavioral and mindset types, right? But you need both of them in order to run a very good business. It's like having a Steve Jobs and a Steve Wozniak. One's very business-minded, the other one's very technical and tactical in their operations. Mm-hmm. So you need both of that. You, you, need, you need that complementary type effort. So we're really good at this side of things. Uh, we can do this side too. So on, uh, you know, things locally, we handle all the operations in house. Uh, but if it's outside of our network and our resources, then we usually partner up with somebody who can act as boots on the ground. And from a role pay play perspective, what, what is that opening conversation that you're having with somebody, whether that's via text message or, you know, your first initial phone call to them? Uh, here, here's the thing. My school of thought is that you cannot say the wrong thing to the right person and you cannot say the right thing to the wrong person. And what I mean by that is if they're a motivated seller, I don't care how much you stutter and, and trip over your words, they will still want to sell you their property. And at the same time, I don't care how perfectly you craft the conversation and articulate whatever. If they're not a motivated seller, they have no interest in selling, they're not going to sell to you, right? Now, is there a gray area in between where maybe sometimes yes, but we're more, my, my, my team is in the sorting business. We're not in the business of trying to convince somebody to sell us their building if they don't really want to sell uh, because we're not really going to get a good deal. We get the best deals by sorting very quickly past bad deals in order to find the best ones. And so our conversation is, hey, it's very straight to the point, right? Like these, these, business, these are business owners and they're busy and they don't want to have fluff. They want straight to the point, bullet points, what's going on. And so we just reach out and say, hey, listen, we, we own some stuff in the area. Just bought, you know, one, two, three Main Street and uh, we're interested in expanding the portfolio. I'm sitting on some cash. Not sure if you have any interest in selling, but if you do, please keep me posted. We're looking to deploy our money in the next six months. Or I'm looking to pick up a couple hundred units in the next 90 days. So just, just reach out to me. So usually it's something along the lines of I'm already in the neighborhood. I'm already familiar with your property. And then what is the benefit to them? I have money. I'm sitting on some cash. I need to deploy it. I'm going to buy somebody's building. It's going to be yours or it's going to be somebody else's. Hit me up if you have any interest in selling. 
sometimes I'll even put in there that, that we're, uh, we, we might even invest in a, in a property that they're acquiring as well, but at least give me a call. What I'm looking to do is build relationships, right? Some people are not selling right now, but eventually they will be a seller. And I want them thinking of me. Like I'm 34 years old. I'm not going anywhere for a while, hopefully, right? Hopefully I'm around for a long time, investing for a long time. And there's a lot of people, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, there's a lot of people who are just, you know, not only our parents' age, but maybe our, our grandparents' age who still own real estate. And eventually they're going to want to pass it on. They're going to want to sell it. They're going to want, they're going to pass away, you know, and somebody's going to inherit it. I want to be first to their, you know, in mind for them to sell their portfolio. Like my goal right now, real, real estate's not a get rich quick. It's a get wealthy slow, right? So I want to be first in mind where they're ready to sell their 13,000 unit portfolio. Tim's the guy that they reach out to because I've already built a relationship with them, right? I'm not trying to do this deal right now. I'm trying to do hundreds, if not thousands of deals with them over the course of the next decade, two decades. So that's always been my approach is having a long-term vision, long-term mindset. That's huge. I mean, this is such good advice because it's a different way of thinking about going and finding commercial deals. A lot of folks within the community have a limited mindset about having this stuff actually work. But when you think about it from a long perspective, like Tim does, you know, you too can go out and find deals direct and bring a lot of value to other people who've been doing this a long time, add a lot of value to your own portfolio, and most importantly, add a lot of value to the investors because obviously you're buying something at a great deal. Well, we've made it to the growth rapid fire round where the questions are quick, but your answers don't need to be. Tell me, Tim, how would you define success and what is success to you? Oh man. Um, I would say that success, that's a great question, by the way. I would say that success is happiness for me. You know, I mean, a lot of people at first, especially when I got first started, it was making money. Right. And then all of a sudden you make money and you buy something you're like, yeah, this is it. You know, uh, for me, it's being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want to with whoever I want to do it with. Right. And that to me is like true success. And you don't need to be wildly wealthy or wildly rich in order to do that. I think that is definitely one pillar of success in my mind. Another one is, is impact. I think the more people you can impact, the more successful you are. And that's, that's really been a driver of mine now. Like once the money was there and once, you know, I had all those basic needs taken care of and I got a beach house now and all that stuff. Now it's more about just like how many other people can I help and like really just impact and help impact their future generations, their family tree and just change things and, you know, getting, getting the, the messages and getting the letters and that kind of stuff of saying, dude, you just open up my eyes to this and that and here's, I just bought this other project and, increase my net worth by two and a half million dollars. And oh my gosh, da da da. Like that kind of stuff really is what feeds my soul today. Huge. I, I love that definition. What are some of your keystone habits, the things you do on a daily or weekly basis that have led to some of this success? Yeah, I think um, being aware of your time. I think a lot of people aren't aware of, our, of, of their time and they think uh, they're going to save money just to go and, and by doing some activity. And the reality is, you can always make more money. You can't make more time. And so for me, I'm very conscious about how am I spending my time? Who am I spending my time with? What am I spending my time on? And I think a lot of people can do this and, and just become aware of what they're doing with their time just by cataloging their time. So like, I remember a couple of years ago, I just sat back and I took a, a, a piece of paper and I just wrote down every 15 minutes, what I did for an entire week was this. And you, you'll realize how much time you're actually wasting. 
and what actually generates, generates revenue and what doesn't and what makes you happy and what doesn't. And I just started focusing on the things that generated revenue and the things that made me happy. And then everything else ended up being uh, the, the, the job description for my assistant that I ended up hiring. All the stuff I didn't want to do, all the stuff that didn't make money, that's your, that's your job. And I hired somebody to do that for what? I don't know, $2,500, $3,000 a month. And how much time? That bought me back 40 hours a week, dude. That's a lot of time, right? And, and, and now I, I, you know, I still do that. And I, I say, if I want to be doing this, I have to be doing at least a $10,000 per hour activity or spending time with my family, which is worth infinite amounts of money, you know? And if it's not one of those two things, get staffed out, gets pushed over to somebody else or I direct them to a podcast or uh, some sort of like online type thing where I can come in and I can, I could be on your podcast one time, but it can be seen hundreds of times, thousands of times. Right. And, and I like the idea of not managing my time, but uh, um, scaling my time, right. Mm -hmm. and, and putting efficiencies in place. Yeah. That's such a big idea right there. Such a big thing for people to underline for sure. What's a book that's impacted your life the most or one you're excited about right now? Man, uh, 12 Pillars by Jim Rohn is a big one. That's, that's about just generating and, and living a good life. Uh, my, my good buddy, Mark Evans, just came out with a book called Magician versus Mule. And it's a little bit of kind of what we've been talking about, how to get outside of you doing all that work yourself and kind of acting more as a magician and putting the right people and processes and things in place to build your business. And so that's a really, really good, he actually just launched it and all the proceeds go to, go to nonprofit organizations and, and stuff. So it's a really good book, Magician vs. Mule by Mark Evans. I'll have to check that out. Inspiration, what impacts have mentors made on your life and how do you recommend others go about finding great mentors? Dude, I, I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's everything really. I've had good mentors and bad mentors. And the thing is, everybody wants to stay away from the bad mentors. I've learned just as much from bad mentors as I did from good mentors about who, who I didn't want to be like, how I didn't want to come across in business, right? And how I didn't want to live my life, which is just as, as important as how you do want to live your life, right? So, you know, I, I mean, mentors have been critical uh, from early stages. And, and what's made a huge impact is joining a mastermind. I got a new mastermind in February of 2015 was my first mastermind that I ever went to. And that is actually when my growth started going like crazy. And I, I took quantum leaps forward every time I got out of a, of a mastermind event. And what's important about masterminds, it's not just one mentor, right? Like they're in a group of 10, 20, 50 different people. And you're going to resonate with some people in that group uh, based on what's going on in your life. And some people might be amazing at running a business uh, and running a big business and you want to go to them for business advice. There's other people who have more of a refined, smaller business, but they have an amazing quality of life with their family and with their kids and with their spouse. You go to them for more relationship type balance advice. There's other people who are like just totally tone and trim and cut and they, they, uh, they look the part and they have a great business. Like, dude, tell me, how do you do that? How do you balance those things out? And so there's a lot of different personalities in a mastermind group and a lot of people that you can resonate, not just a person who's leading the group that you can get information and get, get insights and, and expertise from. So uh, I love masterminds. dude. I'm, I run one and I'm a member of five different other ones. So that's how much I believe in them. 
I think I think masterminds are so critical to my own success. I know that as soon as I joined one, I had a lot of limiting beliefs about spending money on coaching or masterminds or or community. But it's that power of being surrounded by other people who are doing what you want to do and you get almost more value from the members than the people who are organizing it, but the people organizing it help kind of create that community that can be amazing. So that's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. And finally, finishing on this purpose, what drives you to live your best life every day? I, I would, I would go back to impact. You know, I think impact is, is the biggest thing. Like all my businesses are called legacy something legacy. wealth holdings is my investment holdings. My legacy wealth fund is my investment fund. Uh, legacy wealth education is my education brand. And so I'm all about legacy and legacy is not, you know, passing down treasure and passing down property and passing down estate and money. It's passing down education, right. And making it an impact in somebody's mindset. So that way they can then impact future generations as well and create a ripple effect. And so that's, that's really been a driving factor for me is, you know, passing down the insights and the knowledge and the mindset to my kids, not just giving them property, right. Uh, they're going to get a little bit, but I'm going to give most of it away. And then, and then doing the same for other people, you know, like, like my kids are going to be all right, but what about other people? I, I think, dude, I, I, I posted on this yesterday and, and we're filming this the day after Memorial day. And we're sitting here, I'm sitting in back watching the kids play, got a bonfire going, but I had some family and friends over having a, having a couple cocktails and just, you know, food is abundant and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, sitting back and thinking like how grateful I am for what we have. And you think about, what we have versus what other people don't have. You realize other people have to walk two miles each way in order to get fresh water. There's other, there, there's countries where women cannot vote and they have to cover their face all the time, right? Like there's, there's people who don't have shoes, right? We're complaining about how our, how our feet hurt or there's people who don't have legs. You know, there's like, like think about some of that stuff and think about being born in the United States and being dealt the hand that you've been dealt compared to what other hands you could have been dealt in life. If you took your, your, your bingo ball and you put it back into the bucket of 7 billion different other bingo balls, who, who would do that? I know I wouldn't. I'm going to take my bingo ball, right? I'm going to take this. And, and I think we've already won the lottery, dude. To be born in this age, in this country, uh, with, with, the, with the mindset that you have, and the resources that you've been born into and the parents that you had and all these different people who have been an influencer in your life, you realize being born one and then being born under these circumstances is a one in 400 trillion chance. One in 400 for you to be you. Like you've already won the lottery, dude, you know, and, and sharing that insight with people and making sure that they know that. And then, and then also feeling a sense of obligation to pay that forward. Like, I already won the lottery. I like, I have a sense of responsibility now to make sure other people uh, have insight and have wisdom and have knowledge and have mindset and have resources, all these different things to make an impact. And so that's, that's really the big driver for me now. I love that. That's huge. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your mindset on going out and finding multifamily deals and so, so much more. Where can people find out more about you or get in touch? Yeah, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, just uh, connect with me on social media. I'm real active on Facebook. Uh, shoot me a Facebook friend request. And uh, I'm also real active on Instagram too. So send me a 
uh, connect with me on Instagram, connect with me on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn a little bit, but mostly the other two. And, uh, and shoot me a message. If you guys got questions, I answer all my messages. So if there's anything that I can help you out with or point you in the right direction, whatever, I'm happy to do that. So, dude, thank you so much for having me. And you asked some amazing questions. And I appreciate all the content and the value that you put out there, bud. So uh, thank you again. That means a lot. We'll link to all of that in the show notes, guys. So please do make sure you go follow Tim Bratz on all those social medias. And I'll leave you guys as I always leave you. And that's with a reminder to live a life worth inspiring others. And you can do so today by setting yourself up to reach some true financial freedom, to be able to go out and find deals direct to seller, to be able to go out and set yourself up and your family and your investors and the whole community to really go and do amazing things. So thank you so much, Tim and I look forward to seeing you on the other side. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.